Uh, my name is David Soren. I am the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Um, good morning to you. Hey, before we get into our Bible teaching for this morning, uh, I wonder if I could just take a few minutes and I want to talk a little bit about uh, just a process that we've been working on as a church uh, really over the last uh, year or so, and that is the rewriting of our core values and our mission statement. And so, uh, over the last year or so, our staff, in consultation uh, with our board and also getting feedback from our house leaders and our ministry leaders, we've gone through this process of rewriting our, our core values. And what we want to do today is we want to share them uh, with you. But before we get to that, let me just say a little bit about the process. So, uh, I, first of all, I don't want you to be nervous about this. We're not taking the church in an entirely different direction or anything like that. Uh, our, the, the reality is our original core values and our mission statement were written by me out in the woods on a prayer retreat uh, back in 2009 before we started this church. And some of you know those old core values and vision well, but the reality is almost half of you are new just within the last 12 months, and you've never heard them, and you don't know them. And so we decided that it was time to sort of give this a, a fresh look. And the truth is, they were great. I mean, regardless if you know them or not, our church is standing on the shoulders of those core values today. They've shaped us into who we are as a church, how we function as a church. But there's some limitations to them. Uh, For one, I mentioned that they're not as well known as they used to be. Uh, Secondly, they don't as accurately or as fully represent what God is doing in our church today, now 12 or 13 years uh, after we started this church. And thirdly, we wanted to build these values with the Lord and together as leaders, not just me out in the woods by myself. Okay, which is highly entertaining. Uh, Okay, and so for the past year, uh, we've been working on this process as leaders, and we believe that these seven core values that we have and our mission statement, that they, they cast vision to where we're going and that they identify and articulate who we are as a church. So what we're going to do over three weeks is we're going to roll those seven core values out. So we're just going to do two of them today, and then we'll jump into the message. So our first new core value is this. And these are phrases that we want to to, just saturate our church and our culture. And that is this, the first one, we put God first. This is just so deeply on my heart for our church. I think it's a concept that we just must really, really value in America in the coming years. We, as apprentices of Jesus... We must, we must, we must seek first the kingdom of heaven. I think for far too many American Christians, Jesus is fourth or fifth, not first. If there's anything that comes up on their daily schedule, instead of spending time with God, we choose that, right? Or if there's anything else on the weekend schedule, we choose that instead of seeking and worshiping him on a Sunday morning. For so many people, God is fourth. He's an add-on that they bring in to sort of improve their lives when life is hard. But if you're truly going to be an apprentice, a follower of Jesus, you must see him as first in all things. We want you to orient your life primarily around Jesus Christ. All of your life, your schedule, your finances, your time, your mind, your heart, that God is worthy of being first. So we want to be a people, Renovation Church, that puts God first. Okay, second new core value is this. We pray the impossible. So one of the things that we wanted to do is create a core value that really spoke to our growing heart as a church for prayer, which is something we didn't have, honestly, in the first couple of years of the church. Not that we didn't pray, but it wasn't a core value that really drove our church. And we felt like this phrase 
uh, both described uh, what we feel prayer can do, but also why we put such an emphasis on prayer in the first place, because it's prayer that can do the impossible, not just hard work and good strategy. Okay, so there you have it. Those are our first two. We put God first and we pray the impossible. Keep coming back the next two weeks and we will roll out the rest of them. All right, let's jump into our message for this morning. Uh, We are resuming our teaching series on Luke, a book in the Bible where we've been going verse by verse by verse uh, through the entire book. Believe it or not, we started this series exactly four years ago uh, this weekend. I told you it would take three years. Turns out it was more than four. Okay, but we, hasn't, we haven't been doing it every week. We've taken plenty of obviously long breaks uh, to talk about other sections and other sections of the Bible and other topics along the way. But we are now 83 weeks into the book of Luke, which is amazing. But uh, we are going to finish Luke uh, in this stretch right here. Actually, this is really cool. Based on how we're going, we are going to be at the resurrection on Easter Sunday, which is kind of cool. So we're going to do that, obviously, on Easter. That'd be weird if we didn't. Okay. Uh, I should not be your pastor if we're not doing that. Uh, Okay. And then uh, we're going to finish the book of Luke on uh, May 1st, which would be great. Okay. If you are new, since we were last in the book of Luke in December, and I know a ton of you are new just in the last uh, two or three months, Luke is one of four books in the Bible about the life, the teachings, the death, and resurrection of a Jesus. We spent a lot of uh, 2021 looking at really a huge part of the book of Luke, actually, is really the last week of Jesus' life. And so on Sunday of that week, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. We call that Palm Sunday. He does a bunch of things. He cleanses out the temple and teaches. And then on Thursday of that same week, he has the Last Supper with his disciples, Later that Thursday night, he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then from the time of his arrest to his crucifixion, Jesus actually endures six very quick trials, if you can even call them that. Uh, We've covered the first three trials already. They were all Jewish trials. And now we're going to move to the final three, which were all trials under Roman authorities. And so we're actually going to hit trials four and five today. And so now in the timeline, it's Friday morning of Good Friday. The sun is up, but it's still really, really early in the morning. So we're going to join the passage there. Everybody grab a Bible. Uh, There's Bibles under the chairs in front of you, or if you brought your own. uh, We're going to be in Luke chapter 23, uh, page 721. I'd love for everybody to follow along. In fact, let me tell you this. Uh, We're going to start trying something different as a church. Uh, We are not going to put our main passage of scripture on the screen anymore because we know that when you have the Bible in front of you and you can reference it and look at it and study it and keep looking at it as whoever is speaking is talking, you're just going to get so much more out of it. And so we're not going to put it on the screen anymore. So grab a Bible, okay? If you didn't bring one, they're under the chairs, page 721. If I just reference a verse quickly, which I will later in the message, we'll put that up. But our main passage, we want you to just have it in front of you and just just live in the Word of God. So page 721, Luke chapter 23, and we are going to start right at uh, verse 1. Okay, here's what it says. It says, Then the whole assembly rose and led him, that's Jesus, off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah, a king. Okay, let's just pause there just for a minute. Let me give you some context here. So verse 1 says, The whole assembly rose and they led Jesus to Pilate. 
Now, that assembly is the Jewish high council. Uh, it's called the Sanhedrin. They, they basically make the major decisions for Jews in that area at that time. But they bring him to Pilate. Now, Pilate is Pontius Pilate. He's the Roman governor of the region of Judea at that time. And he was the Roman governor because the Romans controlled so much of the known world at that time. They controlled that area as well. And the Jewish leaders bring Jesus now to Pilate, the Roman governor, because while they can do a lot as the Sanhedrin, as sort of the Jewish high council, one of the things that they cannot do is enforce the death penalty. And so they've got to get Pilate to sign off on this if they're actually going to be able to crucify Jesus, which is what they want. But they kind of instinctively know, okay, know that, okay, Pilate is not going to sign off on the death penalty just because we come and say Jesus has been blaspheming. And so they begin to sort of ratchet up their accusations, right? And so what does it say in verse 2? They accuse him of what? They say, he's been subverting our nation. So in other words, they say Jesus has been stirring up riots and undermining law and order, right? Well, that maybe will get Pilate's attention. And then the Jewish leaders say, he opposes payments of t- payment of taxes to Caesar, which is a bold-faced lie. In fact, last year, we covered the passage where they went and asked Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus said in Luke 20, 25, he said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And then thirdly, the Jewish leaders tell Pilate, they say, and he's saying that he's the Messiah, Savior, or he's the king. And they think, okay, which is true. He did say that, right? But they think Pilate's going to get riled up by this because Pilate's not going to want anyone else who wants to take authority from him. So how does Pilate actually react? Okay, let's keep reading now. So verse 3, if you still have it in front of you. Verse 3 says this. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at this time. Okay, let's just pause there. So Pilate, he looks out at Jesus, right? He sees Jesus in his humble clothes. Jesus is already beginning to be bloodied up. He's been mocked and beaten by the Jewish leaders already. But Pilate's not really thinking that Jesus is going to be any sort of threat to his leadership in Jerusalem. But anyway, he still asks. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, why is he even asking? See, one of the things that you see if you dive into history is that at this point in time, Pilate's governorship was actually on pretty shaky ground in history. See, Jerusalem had already had a number of riots while Pilate was governor, and Caesar, the Roman emperor, had basically said to Pilate, hey, if you mess up again, it's over, right? Your career, and perhaps maybe even worse. And yet Pilate, he's looking out at the situation. He doesn't really think Jesus is guilty, especially of anything deserving death. Look at verse 4. What does he say? He says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. And by the way, that's only the first time that Pilate's going to declare Jesus not guilty. If you come back next week, we get to the next passage, you'll see he's going to declare Jesus not guilty a second time and a third time. 
And so what's happening here? Well, let's, let's, let's try and get into the mind of Pilate. Pilate, he's looking out. He sees all of the most prominent, most powerful Jewish leaders in front of him. The Sanhedrin. Behind them, we see from the other Gospels, there's an angry mob. They're in the most powerful city of his jurisdiction, and everybody, we learn from context, and we'll see this next week, is basically screaming, crucify him, execute him. And so Pilate, he doesn't really think that Jesus is guilty, but if he lets Jesus go, Pilate's going to lose his job, or worse. And so when they happen to randomly mention that Jesus is from Galilee, Pilate sees a lifeline, he thinks, oh, Maybe I can just pawn this all off on King Herod. But if we zoom out here, what's happening? What's happening is that Pilate is so focused on keeping his job that he doesn't take the time to see who Jesus really is. Jesus is so close, right in front of Pilate's eyes, but so far from his mind and his heart. So, okay, Pilate has been told that the man standing in front of him is the man that so many people have said is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. To ratchet it up even more, in fact, a little while from this initial encounter, Pilate is going to get an urgent message from his wife about Jesus. And the urgent message says this. This is from Matthew 27. She says this to Pilate, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. And so Pilate knows that he knows, that he knows. He's dealing with a really, really significant person here. But Pilate can't keep his mind off of his job, his reputation, and his own interests. And in the 2,000 years since that conversation, many, many men and women have missed Jesus for the exact same reason. They've heard about Jesus, they're familiar with Jesus, maybe even intrigued with Jesus. And like Pilate, they don't actually think that Jesus is a bad guy or deserving of death or anything like that. But like Pilate, their minds are so wrapped up in their own lives that they've never really stopped to analyze the claims of Jesus Christ. I've said to you a lot of times, even in the last year, very few Americans statistically are actually atheists. Most Americans, if they don't go to church, they have some sort of grab bag, mix and match spirituality. And many of them actually tend to think rather favorably of Jesus. Even though they never actually read his teachings, but they think, eh, Jesus, he's all right. Many Americans are like Pilate. They're close to the truth. There's probably a church on their block, a Bible maybe even on their shelf in their house. But their pursuit of their career goals or finding the right person, raising the perfect family, they always, those things, they always come first. And because of that, they miss what's right in front of them. So close, yet so far. And listen, this can be true even of people who sit in churches. Some of you, you come here with your family. But truly, Jesus isn't actually the king of your life. He's not what comes first, as we said earlier. 
No, it's more like Pilate, where your mind, you're intrigued with him, you, you don't think poorly of Jesus, but your mind is primarily concerned and orientated around your self-interest. Many of those things, by the way, are things that 10,000 years from now on your timeline into eternity, many of those things won't even matter. But that's where your mind goes first. And so I ask you today, what have you done with Jesus Christ? Is he truly your king? And I don't want you to just defer the question like Pilate and pass it on to Herod. Is Jesus Christ, are you living like Jesus Christ is truly the king of your life? Or Pilate, he wasn't. And he sends Jesus off to King Herod. Now, King Herod is actually the son of another Herod in the Bible called Herod the Great, who wasn't actually great because he tried to kill baby Jesus. Who does that? Uh, Now, Herod the Great, if you remember, or maybe you've never heard it before, uh, when Jesus is born, he finds out, Herod the Great, from the wise men that a new king has been born. And so he tries to, essentially he does, he murders all of the young boys ages two and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem. Now, thankfully, Jesus gets out. But this Herod the Great eventually dies shortly after that incident, actually. And his son, King Herod, who's actually Herod Antipas, uh, becomes king, but of a smaller region than his father, kind of up in the area of Galilee. But he happens to be in Jerusalem at the same time. It's Passover, kind of everybody's in town, and Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. And now let's see what happens when they begin to talk to each other, or begin to see each other. So, We'll continue now, verse 8. Here's what it says. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Now, we're told that Herod is greatly pleased to see Jesus. He's exuberant about Jesus coming into his presence. Why? Because Herod was hoping to see a miracle. And again, like Pilate, Herod is so close, yet so far. I mean, think about this. The Son of God is standing right in front of him. Can you even imagine? Like the one who was there at the beginning of time, God in the flesh, the only one who has the power to give Herod eternal life instead of eternal damnation, right there in front of him. And Herod wants to be entertained. So close, yet so far. And tragically, so many Americans are in the exact same scenario. They come to church, and God himself is present right here in this room. The one who created heaven and earth. The one who holds your life in his hands. God is here. And yet many Americans nowadays, they come to church like Herod to be entertained. To see the newest creative ideas. 
that their church has come up with. Many Americans come to church not primarily to seek the Son of God, but to seek out some sort of feeling, an emotional connection in worship. Uh, still others of us are, are like Herod who peppered Jesus with all sorts of questions, hoping, just hoping to hear some sort of great or intriguing new teaching. And Americans today are more guilty of this than ever, right? We invented a phrase for this, church hopping, right? We hop and hop and hop from church to church, trying to find the newest, the best teacher, teacher with the most greatest, intriguing new ideas. But what so many people are actually seeking is entertainment. It's a feeling, a new teaching, uh, perhaps a, a feeling of superiority because of what they've learned. And listen, you can do that for years and not actually truly just seek the Son of God who's right here in front of you. So close, yet so far. The King of Kings is in front of you. What did you come here for this morning? Was it just to get a new intellectual nugget from the Bible? A feeling? Why are you here? Seek the Son of God. He's right here in front of you. Is he your king? Is your life under him? Jesus is not interested in you coming to him just for your own sake. He's not here to entertain you. He's not here just to give you the latest novel insight. Think about Jesus' reaction to Herod. Herod is the only man ever that Jesus refused to speak to. Think about the whole rest of the Gospels. Even if there's a blind beggar crying out on the side of the road, Jesus is like, whoa, stop the parade. I'm going to go talk to him. To the king, not a word. And what's interesting about Herod, when you read through the rest of the Gospels, is Herod already knew something about truth and sin and repentance In fact, before John the Baptist was killed, we're told this. This is from Mark chapter 6, verse 20. It says, Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John the Baptist, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. That verse ought to make a few of you nervous. King Herod liked to listen to biblical preaching. He even liked the fiery preaching of John the Baptist. Herod was excited to go see and talk to Jesus. But at the end of the day, Herod refuses to take off his crown and let Jesus be king. And he is in hell now because of it. So close, so close. Yet so far, millions of Americans, literally millions of Americans, are just like Pilate and Herod. I mean, it's so different than the millions and millions of people who live in the Middle East and parts of Asia. They don't even know the name of Jesus. But for so many Americans, Jesus is right there. But they don't see who he truly is. And for many of us, even as Christians, over time, we just 
we forget who he really is. That we start seeking just a small aspect of what he can give us rather than seeking him. But he's a king. He's a son of God. He's a Messiah. And if Herod or Pilate, just for one second, would have been, who are you? They would have seen it. It's the same is true for us. He wants to know you. He died for you. One of the things I was thinking about just studying this passage this week is, you go through all these trials, like Jesus could have stopped at any time, right? He's so brilliant. Like, don't you think he could have argued his way out of any one of those trials? And by the end of it, they would have been like, you're right, we should let you go. But he doesn't. You know, earlier we read that, he, a number of months ago, that we read that he could have, he said, I could have called down legions of angels to end this, but he doesn't. He wanted to die. Why? Because he was dying in our place, dying for our sins. And the Bible teaches that not only did he come to die for your sins, but when you believe in that, you believe that Jesus died in your place, that your faith in that is what gives you a number of things. It gives you a relationship with God who'll come into your life. That's what allows you to be forgiven believing he died in your place. You're not forgiven just by being a good enough person. It's the opposite of that. It's believing that you're not a good person and that he died for you. And then that gives you eternal life in heaven because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. Without that faith, otherwise you're paying for your sin in hell. But it's your faith in that that saves you. But not only that, we always say that when you believe in that, it's not like, oh, I believe in that, I'm going to continue with my life. It's a reorientation. It's a bowing down. It's a taking off the crown saying, I believe you died for me, so now I live for you. Here is my life. Take it. All of it. And if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus before, I urge you to do that now. It may be your first time in church. It may be your 900th time in church. Listen, one of the things that I feel like a lot of pastors don't say, but it just needs to be said, is there are absolutely going to be people who sat in church almost every week of their life and aren't saved at Judgment Day. Because they didn't actually make Jesus their king. There's some of you probably in this room right now, like Pilate and Herod, you are moderately intrigued with Jesus. You don't think he's a bad guy, but you are the king or queen of your life. Jesus is not your Lord. You haven't actually, you've been sitting here, coming here, but you haven't actually placed your life in his hands. Coming and appreciating Jesus and being intrigued with Jesus is not enough. Have you given your life to him, truly? That's the offer that's in front of us. That's the offer that revolutionizes our life. It's the offer of Jesus. But it's hard to do. Because it just takes a whole lot of humility, right? I think that's ultimately what Herod and Pilate don't have. They go, I don't, I mean, to stop right now in my career, and I, and so they don't. How do you think the great contrast to Herod and Pilate is another man who has actually had some power in the scriptures, and that's in Luke 19, it's Zacchaeus, the powerful tax collector, who was rich as all get out, but sinful as all get out, robbed from his friends and neighbors, And yet Zacchaeus, we're told when he hears that Jesus is coming, that he runs to get ahead of the crowd. He runs. Back in the day when it was really embarrassing for grown men just to go running in front of him. It's still a little bit embarrassing. But in those days, it was super embarrassing. But Zacchaeus, he runs in front of the crowd. 
And then because he's so short, poor guy, he can't still see Jesus. So he climbs up the sycamore tree, even more embarrassing. But he humbles himself. Why? Because he's so desperate to just let Jesus be the leader of his life, to let Jesus in his life. And what does Jesus do? Right? He looks up. There's, there's hundreds of people there. He looks up. He says, Zacchaeus, you come down because I'm coming to your house today. Right? And Jesus has his life, or Zacchaeus has his life entirely transformed. He gets almost everything. But for Herod, who just wants a sign, and for Pilate, who just wants his career to be all right, they get nothing. Nothing. Because at the end of the day, they want to be first. But Jesus wants you to take your crown off and let him be first. I urge you, see Jesus for who he is, the Son of God. Christians, worship him, seek him for who he really is. And for everyone else, I plead with you, if you've never surrendered your life to this Son of God who loves you so much that he was bloody, that he died in your place on the cross, if you've never surrendered, you never believed in that, cast your life upon him, please do so. Because one day, 100% of people in this room will die, and you will face God in judgment. And the issue of your judgment will be based upon, did you accept the rescue mission of his son, Jesus Christ? And the one thing that I don't want is for anyone to go and look back on the videotape of their life and go, okay, March 20th, 2022, there I was. The offer of life and eternal salvation was right in front of me, so close, yet so far, because I just couldn't give up being first in my life. Surrender to Jesus. It is so much better. That's why you're here. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing a final song of worship. And if you're here, and you do just need to make that choice for the first time to say, I may have been coming here for a long time. But I just need to make him my king. To believe he died for me. To make him the leader of my life. What I want you to do is anytime during this last song, I want you to actually slide out of your row and I want you to walk towards the front of the room. Down any of the aisles. Just stand right down here on the floor in front of the stage. Now that may feel like, well, that's not an easy, really an easy thing to do. It's not. But following Jesus is not easy. It's good. But it's not easy. It was not easy for Zacchaeus to climb up a tree. But he knows he needs Jesus, so he goes. And if you know that you need Jesus, then you come. And so at any time during this, this last song, you slide out of your row. Slide, just kind of stand anywhere on the rim, the front of the stage. And then as the song ends, I'll come, I'll pray with you, and help you get started in following Jesus, all right? All right, let me pray, and we'll sing that song. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. We're just so uh, thankful to be back in Luke God, we thank you, oh, that you just love us. That even though we have these seasons of our life where we don't put you first at all, yet even knowing that, you came for us and you died for us. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room right now who is just on the fence and they're just weighing out right now, do I give my life to you? Lord, I pray, I pray that I pray that you just woo them to yourself. You draw, you tell us, God, that you will draw them. And I pray that you just draw them to yourself.
It's in your name we pray. Amen.